the GritFlix.com podcast. Welcome to the BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today we're going to be talking short films. And we're going to be talking to... Alice D. Cooper. Hello, Alice. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Now, I I met Alice at... uh, Was it Nordic Genre Invasion Party? It was. It was. It was the right party, having gone to the wrong party beforehand. (laughs) In in Cannes this year. In, In Cannes, yeah. And we subsequently shared a cup of tea... On the wild streets of Soho. We did, we did. Now, what film have we come to talk about? We've come to talk about a, a little World War One short that I've been uh, that I've made called "A Small Dot on the Western Front." And do you want to give us a brief synopsis of that, Alice? Uh, it's about the only woman to who managed to serve in the Western Front in the Great War. Um, and she managed to infiltrate the miners who were tunneling underneath no man's land to lay mines under the German lines uh, and she managed to stay there 10 days and eventually had to give herself up because she became ill and that of course upset all the generals and there was a general hoo-ha about her her um, presence. And what was the name of this, the, the woman who, who did this infiltrating? She was called Dorothy Lawrence. She came from Hendon. Right, right. Barnet, well, Barnet, Barnet, big Barnet. Yeah, let's get our North London right. Yeah, yeah. Um, now we'll go, we'll go into more detail about that, but first, you're, you wrote and direct this movie, yeah? Yes, I'm produced. I'm one. I'm one of the producers as well. I'm produced it as well. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be showing at what festival? Is it, is it's it... at the. It's uh, it premiered in Las Vegas of all places in all the world at the. Um, <laughs> you said that know. so casually. <laughs> I know, but it was it was the most unlikely for a very very British eccentric short film. Yeah. Um, to be premiered in Las Vegas wasn't quite what I expected but great at the um, Nevada Women's Film Festival and in Excellent. July on July the 7th it's going to be shown at the East End Film Festival in the, at the Genesis Cinema. Brilliant so that's going to be on the big screen at the Genesis? Yeah. Excellent yeah. news, excellent news. <clears throat> so then let's now we've, now we've got the formalities out of the way let's talk about you as a writer first I guess. Um, what what would you say is your kind of your your writing habit, as it were? Are you a are you a are you a? I'm a compulsive. You're a compulsive writer. Does that mean are <laughs> yeah. you are you up with the larks? Are you burning the midnight oil? Are you? No, I'm I'm not I'm not good first thing, but I make myself get to my desk at nine. At nine. Yeah. Um, without fail, because if you get there at ten, it's ten thirty, it's eleven, and the day is just lost. Um, and. Um, but I will if if the if the mood is on, I'll I may work well into the night as well. Oh, so you can you can start you can start a stint at nine, and then if there's a yeah. if there's a good wind, you'll keep going. Yeah, I'll just keep going until I can't see, and then I stop. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your what's your process in terms of uh, getting stuff done? I mean, I mean, do you start straight into a screenplay? Are you index no, no, you... no I'm, 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 I've learnt that if you don't work out your story and your characters you're building a house on sand and you know, you'll, you'll think oh marvellous and you get cracking into it and then you get a, you crash to a block and you can't see your way around it and it's because you haven't thought it through Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm now very meticulous about 
story, uh, not storyboarding it almost, but step outlines and stages so that all the characters, where the character, what are the characters like, what's their, their character diamonds, their character profiles, what's their arcs, what are, what are they achieving, how do they change? So do you, do you spend sort of amounts of time, or do you set yourself amounts of time, or is it just a case of when you've solved them, you've done them? So that could be a, a 20 minute brainstorm or a two month heartache kind of thing. It could be either, and sometimes yeah. you realise that they're not serving the function they're meant to be serving as an ally or a, a detractor or whatever, and you have to rethink them, or make them worse, or make them better, or you know, make them make them three D. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So when you're, so what? How detailed do you get in terms of that step outline? And when you've started to draw, you know, fill in the idea of who your characters are, then I guess that's what bleeds into what becomes your story. Yeah, so so I'll do a step outline, which basically is every scene and yeah. what what happens in it and what is achieved in it. Okay. Uh, we learned that she's got one short leg and that her brother is a werewolf, or whatever <laughs> it might be. <laughs> it's so cliched, that Alice. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's for fe- that's when you're doing feature films, and you, you say I mean, yeah, is yeah. That- you say that's born out of experience where you've kind of, what, have you written yourself into cul-de-sacs before? Yeah, and then you just, you, you can't see your way out of it and you abandon the whole thing. And so all the, all the work you've done is now wasted. All that energy is now wasted. Ah, okay. So now, I, now I'm a bit more cautious. And, and whilst the first draft may be a fantastic brain dump, if I'm yeah. allowed to use that expression, yeah. um, that, that writing the first draft is a, is a joy because there's no one telling you that's, that can't be done. And you have to silence the... Uh, what I call the sulky kitten of self-doubt. The sulky uh, kitten of self-doubt. Who sits on my shoulder and goes, that's not very really good, that's not very really good, that's not very really good. <laughs> so you punch the little kitten and then you get on. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a lovely, it's a lovely image to, uh, to persevere through writing by punching <laughs> yeah. kitten, metaphorical kittens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's a sulky kitten, it's not like it's cute. Okay, okay, okay. It's a bit mangy, though, is it? Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. I get you, I get you. Now, uh, <clears throat> is that, the, the, that sort of step-line process, is, are you spending sort of two to three months then before you get anywhere near sort of fade in? Uh, it, it depends. It depends what else I'm doing. Depends mm. if I'm because I might be in the middle of making, like, I'm about to make a, a short documentary. Okay. So, uh, I might have to. Then, in the in the meantime, I am actually developing the step outline for something else I'm writing. So, things may get put on hold. There's no time, you know, normal time schedule. So, how, I, mean, I, I mean, I've never asked anyone this before, but the 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 idea of juggling sort of multiple projects and sort of returning, you know, where something's, you know, you've you've, you've developed a step outline to a certain point, or you've done. Thirty percent of your character biogs and things, and mm-hmm. how do you find that process of sort of leaving projects where they were and then coming back to them? Well, actually, sometimes it's incredibly helpful because you come back with a clear head. Okay. You know, and also if you type it up, it's not in your handwriting. I find if I leave things in my handwriting, I automatically think they're good because I wrote them. <laughs> whereas, whereas if it's typed up, you're one step away from it. You might recognise your phrasing, but it's n- it's not. You're not so so attached to it, so it lets you be more objective. I'm the I'm the opposite in the sense of I can if I if I write stuff out by hand, when I come to sending it into the computer, I find I can be a, I can find it a lot more rigorous in my editing of of kind of thoughts that I'd accumulated, and they start to flesh out. I'm kind of I'm a lot sketchier when I'm writing by hand. 
Okay. So, if that's if that's sort of a sort of a little bit of a look into your approach to feature led script writing, how does how does it differ? How does the short film format differ in terms of your approach, if at all? Uh, well, it's still much the same. You still you still do a step outline that says in this scene we need to achieve X. Yeah. Um, we need to learn Y. Um, but I'm I also come from an advertising copywriting background where I'm used to telling the three act structure in ten seconds. Okay. So you know, and it makes you a very economical writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can actually crack more in than uh, than usual by making your verbs work hard, and um, you know it makes you much more concise. So you must be you must be the, the, the sort of uh, the president of loglining. <laughs> not, not yet. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's 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 an art there's a copywriting art that, that's that's kind of just sort of snuck into um, into screenwriting that that, that well, you need to be able yeah. to do. You have to be able to log lines, treatments, you know, prose versions of your stories, and the screenwriting. And if you're doing short films as well, you have to do all the marketing documents as well, so all the press packs and the EPKs and all that sort of stuff. And they are all different styles of writing. They are indeed. They um, are indeed. And it's uh, we all have to, we, we have to dig in, don't we, when it's uh, when it needs to be done. Yeah. <clears throat> so with uh, with with a small dot on the Western Front, um, where did you start with that? Because obviously that's a true story. So you're not when. We're not officially starting with a blank page here, are we? We're we're starting with a true story that already exists in the public yeah. domain. So, well, why choose that for starters? What what drew well, you to it? What what <clears throat> sorry? What drew me to it was that um, uh, the uh, we wanted to find a period piece mm-hmm. um, for the main actress, um, and. Uh, I because it was the centenary of the of the Great War, and I'm okay. very into the Great War, and I've written three uh, feature scripts about the Great War now. Okay. Um, and I, I had this story in the back of my head, so I went and found it. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. So uh, Dorothy Lawrence wanted to be a war correspondent, yeah. and um, the national newspapers like the London Times couldn't get their own correspondents. The generals wouldn't let them go to the to the front to to report on the war because they didn't want to let them to know any of the secrets or uh, that might filter through the Germans. Um, so they laughed at her when she said she wanted to be a war correspondent. Um, so she just set off and, and become a war correspondent on her own. Um, and most World War One stories are about men and about the camaraderie of men and loss and incredible sadness and waste. And the women are normally depicted as sort of the brave wife or sister or mother waiting at home or a nurse yeah, tending yeah, yeah. the wounded. Of but course. this was just a bit of British bonkersness. And I, li- I liked that. Um, it was just a bit different and away from the sort of muck and bullets and mud of the trenches cliches that you're so familiar with i mean how when did you come across the story originally where, where was it uh it's in it's in one of my many world war one books so okay okay yeah, so yeah. i mean this is this is of with her being the only woman to get to serve yeah. there i suppose mm. this becomes quite the infamous story then i suppose for yeah for world war one yeah. yeah and so w- when you're taking i mean interesting enough then so when you're doing a biopic which is obviously what you're doing really yeah, yeah. despite being a short form is um 
how do you handle the, 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 the choices you have to make in terms of what's dramatic and what's the true story? Uh, well, I was very lucky. I had, I had three historians helping me. Blimey, O'Reilly. One of them was David Kenyon, who, uh, Dr. David Kenyon, who helped um, advise Spielberg on War Horse. Mm-hmm. Um, though he did say that he would often go to Spielberg and say that didn't happen in World War One, and Spielberg would say, I don't care. Just <laughs> <laughs> why War, War Horse is full of inaccuracies and acronyms and all sorts of things. Um, but, you know, it's, just, it's storytelling. Um, well, the, I think that the... They had people. We had people help uh, these three guys helping me, um, and there are there are dramatizations of things. When she gets arrested, she was actually arrested above ground. But I thought it'd be more fun to have her arrested underground because it just okay. made it a bit more fun. Um, and also, if she was arrested above ground, it meant we'd have another location. So uh, it was just keeping the locations really, really limited. Um, and we had to build a um, a tunnel because okay. obviously there aren't too many of them around. Not at um, all, no. So we built a tunnel um, under one of the sound stages at uh, Three Mills in, oh, right, okay. uh, in, in Bow Studios. Yeah, not far from where I'm sitting right now. Oh, there you are. And, um, and why, I mean, with budget being a finite thing, and obviously at one end of the scale, contemporary and contained is easy, and mm. period and outdoors and things is not. What what were the challenges there for you? You know, in terms of there's the one thing historical facts, and then there's also the details that look mm. that look World War One. Well, I'm I'm a, I'm very picky about World War One. I. I mean, things like wristwatches weren't really wristwatch. In 1915, a wristwatch was like an iPhone six. Wow. Um, so if you see someone wearing a wristwatch in 1914, like in Testament of Youth, they had wristwatches, and they wouldn't have had them because um, they weren't. The, the officers eventually got them in 1917. Yeah. Um, but they weren't normal, normal issues. So people look at pocket watches. And I'm, I'm very, that all the cat badges, every button, buckle, everything was absolutely spot on. I know a lot of people don't care about it, but I do. Um, and things like every, everyone who could grow a moustache had to grow a moustache under army regulations. Really? Yeah. Um, and, of course, not everybody has a moustache or has the capacity of growing a moustache. This is true. So, so we had to hire moustaches, which cost £40 a day. Which makes, you know, when, when you've, you've got um, various members of cast, that's, that's quite a chunk of cash just on upper hair management. Upper lip hair management. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so even though you had the, the get-out of if you could grow one, you had to, but if you didn't grow one, yeah. obviously you couldn't. Yeah. You yeah. chose to have them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They do look fetching, I must say. I must yeah. say. But all, I mean, so you had to create moustaches that look like they've been there for 40 years. You know, and, you, and most men can grow a moustache in about three weeks. True, true. But, um, these ones had to look like they, they've been there absolutely since they were 18. So. Okay, okay. Um, and and, and how, how do you go about sourcing it? I mean, if you're working with historians on the, on the, on the story side of things, mm. then... What work are you having to do to ensure... I mean, it sounds to me, obviously, like from the work you've already done up, leading up to this film, that you're already very much an expert and have an eye for well, some of the details yourself. Yeah. But who, who are you... How are you ensuring sort of... We had a, a historian called Andy Robertson who has on, on a garage on the side of his house, which is like a sort of emporium of World War One. Really? And I just went, da- went down to his house. It's down in uh, 
Guildford way. And I, I went down to his house and borrowed stuff. We just, it, we just, he just became our go-to hire man. So we borrowed lanterns and hand torches and um, uniforms and all sorts of things. Most of which were absolutely covered in mud of some sort, yeah. and all of which had to be washed. And of course, you can't. These are hundred-year-old uh, uniforms. You can't just lob, lob them in the dish in the washing machine. So I washed them in my bath, and they took three days to dry. In my house, Jeez. so you imagine you can't imagine what it'd be like sitting in a wet trench. You ne- must have never got dry. That oh. uh, just doesn't doesn't bear thinking about. But no, he lent us bo- boots and socks and undershirts, and he lent us pretty well everything. And we hired the general's tunics and their hats. Yeah, that's the only thing we hired. Okay, from uh, Angels. Now, like we said at the beginning, you 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 directed this as well. Was that was that part of the? deal going into it or is that something that was yeah, born yeah, out of the yeah, process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my it's my I've done eight shorts now. Okay. Um five dramas, one museum installation drama and two <coughs> corporates. So the mix of things. Okay, okay. And um and what what is your what's your approach to um the actors then? How how do you like to direct them? Um I don't like to rehearse too much. Okay. Uh, I like them to understand. I'll, have, I'll sit down and talk to each of them individually about who their character is and how, what I'm expecting from them and how they understand the character, and supply any information that. I mean, these guys we knew some to some extent who they were. Okay. So there's a miner who works with Dorothy, who we, we know is called Tommy and came from Lancashire, so he had to have a Lancashire accent. Okay. Um, so there's yeah. So I go away and find out what a Lancashire accent is and come back when you've perfected it, sort of stuff. Um, I mostly <laughs> rely, rely on actors to, to do what they do best, um, but just direct them on, on logistics, you know, pick up this piece of paper, turn to them, talk to them, or that kind of thing. Okay. Um, hopefully the, the, the uh, actors we cast are all well capable of picking up the character and making them their own. I guess I guess that's this the wrong way around. So I'll, I'll still go with the cat. The, the, what was your process for casting the movie? Uh, we had, I had a casting uh, director called Irene East. Okay. And how, what was your involvement with that? Were you, were you directly involved, or was it kind of uh, to some to some extent? Um, getting getting the um, the the military policeman one with I'd worked with one of them before, um, and the other guy actually came in on for the role of of, of Tommy. Yeah. But actually turned out, I said, could you be a military policeman? He just, his whole body shape changed and he became this, the, the military policeman who speaks the most. Okay. Uh, who, you know, does all the, went left, right, left, right, left, right. Uh, went to, went to, you know, eyes front, all that sort of stuff. That, and he suddenly became this shouting bully and he, 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 he was, um, one of the historians was a military policeman and yeah. he taught them how to march and salute and stand and the whole kind of thousand yard stare thing. Yeah, I did. I did some um, extra work last summer for um, for Tarzan, and I was playing a Belgian mercenary from eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. And the military advisor on that was telling us, you know, you know, you see the kind of soldiers on the streets of Northern Ireland as was mm. with that kind of tucked under the arm, gun pointing to the floor. Yeah, which obviously all of us did because that's what we've seen on the telly. Yeah, and basically he 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 told us all off. And was like saying that wouldn't happen then. A bit like your kind of uh, your they wouldn't be wearing a wristwatch kind of yeah, detail yeah. thing. It's like it's interesting, isn't it? How there are specifics that if you do something outside of what would be the norm, then 
then it's it's no longer kind of it, it loses its authenticity from yeah, what it's yeah. what it's meant to be. It depends. Uh, it depends who knows. I mean, there's a lot. Of, some people say it, said to me afterwards when they'd seen the film, "We don't care about those details." I'm like, "Well, I do." Yeah, it's just but, it's just important. But they don't care. But if you, I mean, if you never had, a, you know, a, t- a, a, a spray tin of links on the table, or something ridiculous <laughs> from 2015, yeah. it would it would have been like took you out the film, wouldn't it? It's kind yeah, of. Yeah. I, I understand how people go, "Look, it doesn't matter yeah, so yeah. much that the cat badge is right," but mm. but the fact is, when the cat badge is right. It generally lends kudos Authent- to the rest of it. Yes, authenticity. Yeah, it means you're thinking about it all. Um, yeah. What were what were the um, from a directorial point of view? Then what were when you were, when you were on the because it's, it's two heads, isn't it? There's the writer who's going, yeah, look yeah. at that. Let's get mm. fifty camels coming over the hill, and then the director <laughs> goes, how oh, the frig do we do with that? So mm. what was what were your challenges to yourself where you had to either rein it in? From a directorial point of view and producer, I suppose as well. Um, yeah. Or where was you? You were really pushing yourself to make to to, con- to get it into the film. What was on the page? I think the hardest thing was the getting this tunnel. And in fact, we ended up. We should have done the tunnel first, but the tunnel was still being built while we were filming. So we had to, literally. It was the last squeak afternoon, okay. and actually, it's, that, that was an incredibly a wonderful designer called Humphrey Yeager built this um, extraordinary thing out of something else some packing cases and god knows what um underneath this sound stage okay. and that, that that was the trickiest thing and to have it so it had sides that you could remove for doing tracking shots and things like that that was the trickiest thing yeah um, i remember so i watched the um the making of kill list have you seen that film no about the two hitmen and there's a key scene towards the end where they're in a tunnel <laughs> sort of being chased by some lunatics mm. And in the making of it, it's a, it was it, it was like you know somebody going look there's fire that's how you invent fire and I'm like Jesus and it was just this plastic molded um, it wasn't underground at all it was a it was made it was above ground and when you went in it and it was filmed it looked underground but it was uh, it was far from being underground in reality when you yes. saw it on the set and again like you say the idea of taking things off to get the camera in was integral to why why yeah. it worked and how, I mean how did you how did you find sort of shooting on a sound stage as opposed to shooting on a location. Oh, but it was on a location because it, okay. it, it was underneath the sound stage. <laughs> Fair point. Um, and it was kind of in this sort of... In fact, there's, there's a couple of shots where uh, there's a prison r- room where it actually is just against a wall mm. and we created the, re- the sense that it was a room with sound. Okay. Um, but it was... It was, uh, it was uh, there was a, something else going on upstairs. So... But that was fine because you had all like any any kind of sounds of the London City Airport or the A12 or the DLR were fine because you could mask them all with ordnance sounds. Okay. Because you're adding all the perspective of the war and yeah. the and the artery, uh, oh, the artery, the artillery. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Those noisy arrows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, um, you can just cover it all up with with sound design. Okay. Okay. Um, what what was some of what was your um, going back to the script for a second? What was um, what were the story challenges for you in terms of uh, when you when you were sort of bridging it between sort of what's true and what's dramatic? Was what, what were the what were the challenges you had to overcome in that one? Do you think? Well, the the the, the real issue with the story is that 
how she gets to the front is actually another whole story in itself, which mm-hmm. I've now expanded into a, a one-woman show, okay. uh, the theatre show, because she extraordinary woman. I mean, I couldn't... Could you cycle from London to Paris on a bike now? I've done it. OK, well, I couldn't do it. But <laughs> could you could you do it in a skirt, a corset, a hat, on a bike with no gears? Oh, no, I couldn't do it on a 1915 bicycle, of course. Yeah. No, no, that's true. Um, round the back of a wall. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> it's the world of war bits going on that's probably yeah. the bigger, the bigger yeah. stumbling block, not the fitness. So, so there was stu- there was a lot of stuff I had to decide to leave out and just have very vague allusions to. Mm. Um, and also, she was a, considering she wanted to be a war correspondent. She's rubbish writer. Is um, she really? Yeah, she's really really poor writer. Um, and the her information is very erratic, and it contradicts itself. So she wasn't a journalist by any stretch of the imagination. Oh yes, she did. She was, but she she was writing, you know, um, how to make lacy mats, you know, kind okay. of stuff for, for lady society <laughs> stuff. You know, nothing to do with war at all. Um, uh, sort of ladies' friend kind of articles. Ah, okay, okay. Um, so nothing to do with war, war correspondence at all. Um, okay. But it's, it was what to leave out and what what was logistically possible. Ah, okay. Um, so, so and also, it, also, we did, we didn't know a lot of it's still, uh, um, what's it called, classified. So we don't know a lot of the details. So the dialogue is very much yours. You've kind of yeah, assumed, yeah, yeah. You yeah. assumed yeah. you yeah. assumed the conversations that might have gone on. Yeah. Because it's kind of like it's you, you've played it quite with with a sort of a wry smile on your face, haven't you? You know the well, idea. Well, that, it is. It is because I didn't want it. I didn't want a World War One stuff. Oh God, the. 42nd Division is going over the top again. They've all been slaughtered. Yeah. Because you know, that's what you get in World War One films. Yeah. I wanted just something that was a bit... It is a funny film. I mean, it's a funny story, I think. Of course. No, no, no. Sure, yeah. sure. It's a, a, I mean, the generals must have been apoplectic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can... It's <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful moment in, in, in the film where the four... It's four of them, isn't it? There's four of them look three, at each... Three, three, three. Three of them, sorry. Yeah. Three of them look at each other. As if to, when she admits how she got in, which essentially seems to be she walks in, and they're kind of like, how the hell? They're looking at each other without saying a word, going, and you can see them going, well, how the hell did that happen? This is the British Army, <laughs> and it's all it's all happening just through three three people looking at each other, and you yeah. can you can imagine that that sort of how dare she? And then well, and then it, and then the payoff being afterwards, like you know, she could have lied. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, also, but also, she wasn't just a woman who'd done that, but also she wanted to be a correspondent. You know, the, the fact that there's someone they might take the story back and they'll find out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, true. Uh, Mrs. General will never get, never get served in the butchers again. The shame, you know. <laughs> now, look, remind us then, when's, yeah. it, when's it going to show? When's it's it going to be on going? the 7th of July, 7th of the 7th, um, at the Genesis Cinema as part of the East End Film Festival. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, you, you, you've already sort of given us given us some hints there about you. You've now expanded this into a one-woman stage play. Yeah. And, so what's that, and what's that called? A Small Dot on the Western Front. Well, there we go. That's clever. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's still the same story, but it could be a small dot on the stage as well. But, you know, um, that's, that's kind of the other name for it at the moment. But it's, I think I'll just call it the same because it's it's a little little joke about her name. So, okay. Yeah. So what, what, what part of the process are you with that? Uh, we're well. The script is well done. I've got. I'm meeting up with the actress. The same actress is going to play her. Okay. Um, I'm meeting her this week to to um, work on the next draft, and we're hoping to have it on its legs in time for the centenary, which is September this year. 
Fantastic, fantastic. And where, where will that? Where will are you, have you got a, a location in mind, or is not, that... not? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Let's, okay. let's just get the script right first. Fair enough. Fair yep. enough. Now, for those people that don't know, uh, a screenplay and a stage play are very different animals. Mm. Um, despite the fact that they that they probably associate with people talking, and uh, whereas a script, I think a screenplay, it's safe to say, usually because obviously being born out of silent cinema is, is, is full of action and not talking in some senses. Mm. But obviously a stage play won't work mm. if it's all about the action because it's... Uh... So how did, you find that, how did you find that translation of... And also the, that way of telling the story, does that mean you have people narrating it or is it always... No, no, that's just, it's just her telling the story. Ah, okay. um, she was uh, invited by Christabel Pankhurst, daughter of the fabled Mrs Pankhurst, okay. to, to come and address her ladies... Um, and this is, this is supposing of, this is when she came round and they all were sitting around having, drinking tea and eating cake and she's just telling the story. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Uh, and how, how do you, I mean, how do you find that? Just the, the, the idea, I mean, what's the difference between a kind of monologue and, and short stories, I suppose? It's kind of, you're trying, you're trying to channel, aren't you, that kind of oral tradition of storytelling? Yeah, yeah. And also, a... yeah, also you've got to tell it in the style of how she would have spoken. So it's fairly kind of jolly hockey sticks, oh, jolly hocks, I can't even say it, jolly hockey sticks-ish. Okay. You know, yeah, in my word. You, know, it's like, you never guess what happened next. Uh, okay, okay. It's very kind of, and you, know, you, you get the opportunity to give a lot more context to the war as well, and, and the, the role of women in the war. Uh, okay. You know. You know how how women, when when the men went off to war, the women were told not to cry, because if it was the last thing that the men ever saw of the women, and if she was in this sort of tear stained heap, um, it wasn't it wasn't going to help encourage them. So you had to do this happy happy smile and off you go, um, and then when they'd gone, you could cry. So things like that, you had to keep this stiff upper lip so that the chaps knew that um, the brave little woman at home was being a brave little woman. What what is it as I mean what is it as a writer that that interests you about the the First World War? I don't know. It's just um, I'm in the middle of writing an article for a uh, online um, uh, thing about about World War One films. Um, okay. I just just it just fascinates me this kind of uh, why the why the men went this whole kind of ridiculous posturing. I've got new new weapons and well mine are better than yours. Let's all have a war. Yeah, which is basically was the what kicked it all off. Um, and it's just interesting how it's been depicted and how the truth was different from the, you know, how the truth was hidden from the folks at home to keep morale up. I suppose it's, it's, it's almost like the, if you look at the 20th century, it's like the birth of telecommunications, isn't it, in a sense, and, 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 and uh, mass communications. So by the time you've got Vietnam War, we're almost, getting, we're almost watching it happen there and then, whereas mm. when the First World War, you really could tell an untruth, couldn't you, as if it was true. Yeah. Yeah, or, be... or or keep it quiet for some time until you had amended the situation. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, now, what I usually do with people on the podcast, and I usually give them a bit to prepare, so please have a think about it. Um, I can edit the uh, the thinking out, as it were. <laughs> but you may you may you may have you may have one that comes straight off your head. I ask people because of a Britflix, uh, mm. get people to recommend a British movie, but it would seem fitting. The, and given you've just said you're writing an article that maybe yep. recommend a British war movie it doesn't have to particularly be a first world war mm. but that'd be nice if you have one I, yeah, I'll tell you my fav- my absolutely favourite 
um, war. Well, it's it's influenced by the war since most of it's set in the war. Okay. And it's called Random Harvest. Okay. And it's a very clever bit of storytelling with a bit of amnesia left over from the war. And um, it's uh, it's done in the 40s. Very, very good film. Random what, sorry? Random Harvest. Random Harvest. I've got a bit of power of the internet while we're talking. It's got Ronald Coleman. Yeah, got the... Greer, Greer Garson. Sounds tremendous. An amnesiac World War One vet falls in yeah. love with a musical star. There you are. So that's yeah, you're right. It's kind of like that. That I that's it's sort of it's not atypical, is it, not to tell a story like that about? But obviously, I'm guessing it's quite quite a serious story because yeah. it's about post traumatic whatever that happens yeah. after the war. Mm. Well, that's a good recommendation. So let's one more time. Let's remind people when where when and where they can see this movie. Uh, it's the film is called A Small Dot on the Western Front. It's in the Rebel Girl short film program as part of the East End Film Festival on the 7th of July at the Genesis Cinema in West London, in East London. Brilliant, brilliant. And sometime in September, hopefully, there'll be news of a stage play of the same name. Yeah. All things being equal. Well, look, yeah. Alice, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.